We are um, in 2 Samuel 23 this morning. Last words of David. There was um, a Scottish pastor named Thomas Hogg. He died in 1692. Before he died, he asked his congregation to, after he died, to bury him at the entrance of the church. And the inscription on his tombstone says this, and you can still see it today, but it says this, This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltairn if they bring an ungodly minister here. In other words, Thomas is saying, over my dead body will you bring a bad pastor to this church. <laughs> that sounds like a very Scottish thing to say. It also sounds a bit like the last words of King David recorded in 2 Samuel 23. He is concerned about future king. David's last words are a prophecy about the future of God's kingdom. We're going to read the entirety of it. It's seven verses, beginning 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For He will not, or will He not, cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken by the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And that's our text for this morning. I'm going to break my pattern for Samuel, and I'm going to do a three-point sermon today. Okay, so point number one, God's kingdom will come. In verse 3, David says, the God of Israel has spoken. In verse 5, he says, he has made with me an everlasting covenant. And the specific promise that David proclaims as his last word is that God will bless Israel with a king who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And then David tells us in verse 4 that this king will rule or govern his people like the sun. 
what I want to do is I want to make a connection that runs throughout this prophecy back to the creation story in Genesis. And so for reference, listen to what Genesis chapter 1 verse 16 says. It says, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, which is what? The sun, right? And the lesser light to rule the night, which is what? The moon. And the stars. And so when David says that this coming king will rule like the sun, he is making a connection with creation. This becomes more obvious as we go along. And it's no coincidence that the Apostle John writes at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 5, he says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So as we move through this text, I want you to see there's a connection between like the beginning of the Bible, David's prophecy, and the end of the Bible. And I don't know if David understood that, but God was very intentional about it. So I want us to see this, okay? And this is the prophecy. This is the promise. He's saying God's kingdom will come and God's king will rule like the sun. The hard part is that this prophecy wasn't only future tense for David. It is still for us mostly future tense. Jesus, of course, came the first time and inaugurated the kingdom when he visited the earth. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is only going to happen in the future when Jesus Christ returns. And in the meantime, that is a lot of waiting. It was a lot of waiting for David. It's a lot of waiting for us. And it's a lot of waiting in a world that quite honestly feels very dark and very chaotic at times. And I just want you to remember the story of David. We've now been studying for months. How many years was it after David was anointed before he became king? Wasn't it like 17 or 18 years? How many more years before he actually secured the entire kingdom? And the truth is, David never really lived in peace. And still, this same man believed God would keep his promises. Even the ones he hadn't kept yet. And he's saying, God's kingdom will come. A better king will come. But not only that, David tells us what this kingdom will be like. And this is the second point. God's kingdom will come like the spring. Verse 4, he says this. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. He's describing a... A spring morning, right? Blue skies, bright sunshine, freshly fallen rain that causes the grass to sprout. This is a picture of spring. But David is also connecting 
again, this prophecy back to creation. He's describing light coming from darkness. He's describing plants springing up from the earth. This is also Genesis 1. And yet, it may be difficult for us to really feel the weight of what David is saying because we live in the 21st century and we have central heat and air. We have modern conveniences that dull the changing of the seasons for us, right? And so you can go to the grocery store and you can find fruits and vegetables in the supermarket year-round, right? You can go in January and, and get something that grew in South America. And so we don't really think about the seasons all that much, except for we change clothes when we go outside or whatever. You know, we wear a jacket in the, in the fall. And, but for most of human history, spring was celebrated, vigorously celebrated, because winter was difficult for everybody. No one wants the spring more than people who have been living for months in a long cold winter. If you're familiar with the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Remember how the animals rejoiced when the long winter and the white witch finally was uh, eliminated and the, the winter ends, right? And everybody's celebrating this. That's the idea that David is describing here. This spring is coming. This kingdom will be like a spring He will rule His people in this way. He will bring an end to the winter. And it sounds like creation, light coming from darkness, plants springing up from the soil. But then we also have another connection, again, to Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, John sees the river of life flowing through the New Jerusalem. And he says... On either side of the river, this tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, what kind of tree produces 12 kinds of fruit year round? No tree, (laughs) right? There is no such thing. Um, Everything in our world currently is bound up in the cycle of seasons. I'm not even sure, the ag guys can tell me, is there a tree in the world that produces fruit year-round? I don't know that that's a thing. I don't think that's a thing, right? And so not even one kind of fruit year-round, right? But 12 kinds of fruit... Every month, right? So apparently we can deduce from this logically that in the new kingdom, it will always be spring and never winter. It will always be harvest season, which I don't know, spring's not really harvest season, but you get my point, right? There's always going to be something growing and it will be good and it will be beautiful, right? And it's difficult for us to imagine a world like that. It is difficult for us to have hope when we can't see the things that we're hoping for. We don't even have anything remotely resembling this prophecy. And yet this is the Christian hope. This is what the Apostle Paul meant, I think, in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I don't have anything that I can tell you that it's going to be like. It's going to be beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're fleeting. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And the hard part is, because of the way we experience time in our lives, our affliction doesn't feel momentary, does it? Our suffering doesn't feel transient. I mean, can you look at a brother or sister in Christ who's been living with years and years of pain, chronic pain, and say, oh, that's momentary, right? It, it's true. What Paul says is true, and he has a right to say this because the brother experienced a whole lot of hardship, right? And you read his story and it's like, how's this dude still believing this stuff? But he says it, and compared to eternity, it is. It is momentary. I mean, if you think about it like this, compared to eternity, your entire lifespan is less than one grain of sand held up against every beach on the planet. It's, it's, it's insignificantly small. We hosted Presbytery on Tuesday, and Dr. Tom Gibbs, uh, who is the president of Covenant Seminary, preached a, a wonderful message from Daniel 9, and he shared an illustration that I'd never heard before um, about the growing cycle of something called the Chinese bamboo tree. Of course, you picture what a bamboo looks like, but this particular uh, type of bamboo tree he said that the tree starts like every other plant. It's this tiny seed, and the farmer places the seed under the soil. And like every other plant, it needs to be tended. It needs water. It needs sunlight. But this particular seed takes a lot longer to germinate than most seeds. And in fact... It's not until the fifth year when that seedling finally breaks the surface of the ground. And then after it does, in the fifth year, this tree grows rapidly 80 to 90 feet tall in a matter of six weeks. Isn't that crazy? For five years, you see nothing. And it doesn't mean nothing's happening, right? Actually, underneath the soil, during those five years, this plant is growing under the surface. It has an amazing root system that's been preparing it to support the rapid growth of the tree above ground. And the whole time, someone is tending these plants 
Someone has to water them and protect them and trust that one day this thing is going to bear fruit, that it's going to grow. But you don't see it. You don't see it. And that's how the kingdom of God will come. According to Jesus, God is building something mostly unseen by us for now. But the Scriptures tell us that it will have miraculous results one day. And many of Jesus' parables teach that exact lesson. God is at work even if you can't see the impact of it yet. And that leads us to the final point. God's kingdom will come like the spring whether we like it or not. David ends with a warning. Worthless men are like are all like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand. The man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So again, we actually find a very clear connection to the story in Genesis. But this time it's not creation, it's the fall of Adam into sin and the curse of God upon Adam because of his sin. Genesis 3 says this, Cursed is the ground because of you and pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. When the spring comes, farmers, gardeners, what are they busy doing? They're busy planting. They're busy tending the garden tending the farm, right? And what is one of the jobs that must be done? Somebody's got to go out there and pick the weeds, right? Or spray for them or whatever it is you guys do. I mean, you, there, are, there are going to be weeds to pick. There are thorns to pick. There are things that have to happen where the gardener is going to have to actually prevent or physically pull up by force and often actually physically burn those things. And that's what he's talking about, right? You can find more examples of this in the parables of Jesus. Listen to Matthew 13, verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then again we find a parallel in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. It says this, verse 14, Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so the message is clear, albeit difficult, right? But it's clear. What is Jesus saying? What is, what is John saying? What is he seeing? God's kingdom will come. 
For some, it will come like the spring. And it's going to come whether we like it or not. But do you see what he's saying? Some people are grass. Some people are weeds. Some are grass. Some are thorns. And listen, I know how this sounds. Right? Outsiders, people outside the church, you know, they cringe when they hear us teaching about heaven and hell. And in fact, a lot of people don't even really clearly teach about this anymore. And we talk about grace and we talk about sin, but we don't really talk about judgment because it does not sell. And so the world has adopted this view. I mean, surely if there's a God, He intends for everyone to be saved, right? I mean, in the end, He's just going to wipe the slate clean. Everybody's going to get to heaven. I mean, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could that be? How can some people be referred to as grass and others be referred to as weeds or thorns? When in reality, from our perspective, most of the people who are going to be considered by Jesus to be grass versus weeds, we would look at them and say, I don't necessarily see the difference because most people I know are a mix of good and bad, right? They do some good things, some honorable things, and they do some pretty terrible things in their lifetimes. I mean, that's me. That's most people, right? And so I think it's very important for us to see the difference in the Bible between these two groups. The world assumes that what we're talking about is grass people in this scenario are the self-righteous religious people of the world. And the weed people are the unforgivable sinners of the world, right? That's how a lot of people assume. That's what we're talking about. Church people and everybody else. That's actually not an accurate portrayal. I want you to look closely. We're going to go back. I want you to look at what David says about the thorns. Okay, Look very closely. What did he say? He said, They cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. In other words, the gardener uses a tool because grabbing thorns with your hands hurts, right? Do you grab thorns with your bare hands? No. And yet, right there, in the middle of the text, is the hidden mystery of the Gospel. The good news. It's right there. Do you see it? What do Christians believe Jesus did for us? We believe that He bore the sins of His people and the curse of our thorns. Jesus literally wore a crown of thorns on His head in case it wasn't obvious enough to us that that's what He was doing. They literally 
pierced the hands of Jesus with nails. And they thrust into His side the shaft of a spear. Jesus was the only one who could take sinners with the hand. You see, Christians don't believe. We don't believe that we can earn our own salvation. I don't get to grass status because I've been grass worthy. This is just not how it works. And so if we come to the Scriptures and we think, okay... Saving the grass, killing the thorns, right? And I mean, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm worthy, I'm a grass person, you're missing the entire point of the gospel. The difference between the grass and the thorns has absolutely nothing to do with your efforts. Grass passively receives the sunlight and the rain. It is tended by the gardener. It has only to do with the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has every right to pull us up as thorns and burn us in the fire. And He's the only one who can actually reach into the fire and pull us out. We do not deserve spring. What we deserve is the endless winter. Every single person in this room. Earlier this week, I went fishing uh, one morning before work, and I was walking along the bank, and off to the side, I see this, this young goose, still got the down, right? No feathers, just, just the goose down. Little yellow goose sitting in the grass, looking at me, all alone. And I assumed that as I got closer, you know, I'm fishing, I'm getting closer to the goose. I assume this goose is going to get up, jump in the water, run away, right? And he doesn't. He just sits there. And finally, I'm standing over the goose, and he looks up at me and hisses at me, but he doesn't move. And so at this point, I assume the goose is injured. And so I reach down and picked him up, and took him home. Now, do you think the goose was happy about this? Not at all. (laughs) This goose saw me as a threat, right? Not a savior. My intentions were to help the goose. But the goose saw me as a giant enemy. And he tried to wiggle free when I picked him up. And he defecated all over my clothes. This goose did not want the salvation that I was determined to provide him. Didn't want it. Took him home. We realized that he had a string tied around both of his legs. Couldn't walk. So we very carefully cut away the string... Later that day, we went back to the park. We looked for the other geese, found a family of geese that looked like it might be this 
you know, the right size with the other babies. And sure enough, we put it in the water and it swam straight to that family and they, they got it and he's now safely with his family. Reunited. And brothers and sisters, I think that is a much more accurate way for us to think about the gospel. I have never met someone, I really haven't, I've been a pastor for over 20 years, I've never met someone who just naturally ran to Jesus with open arms. Now we talk that way and we even sing songs like that, right? My chains fell off and I ran out of that grave, right? And eventually, we do come to appreciate salvation. We do find our rest in Jesus. He does lead us to repentance and faith in the gospel. And eventually, we start to worship Him. And we do look back on it in some ways like that. But not at first. At first, it feels like death. It's confusing and scary to think that you deserve hell. That you're not good enough. That no one is. It feels like dying. Maybe that's why Jesus described it that way. But how did Jesus describe evangelism to His disciples? What did Jesus call His disciples? He called them what? Fishers of men. Have you ever met a fish that wanted to be caught? I do a lot of fishing. I've caught a lot of fish. I've never had a fish swim up to the shore and say, please catch me. Right? Or when there's a hook in his mouth, he's like, oh yeah, that looks like a good place to go. I'm going to swim straight to that guy. No. What do they do? They fight. And that's how Jesus describes us. That's how Jesus describes lost people. Fish that don't want to be caught. But they need to be caught. And I know that doesn't sound much like an encouragement, but it is. Because you know what it means? It means that your salvation is in the hands of Jesus, not yours. That's what it means. It means God has the power to save. He's not waiting on you to figure it out. Trust Him. King Jesus has promised salvation for His people. He has promised it. He is God's last word on the matter. He reaches through the thorns to free us from the snares of sin and death. He holds us close to calm our fears, even though we really do see Him as an enemy until He changes our hearts. He holds us close until we realize we're actually safe. And He reunites us with our Father. And then the sun rises and the winter fades and one day it will be spring forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
you are the only difference between worthless men and saved men. Father, I pray that um, we would look forward to your kingdom with much rejoicing, that we would rejoice as if the spring has come, that we would look forward to it, that we would live in hope, not in things that are seen, but in things that are unseen. That we would trust that below the surface, you are busy building a kingdom that is mostly spiritual and mostly unseen at this point. But one day, one day, you will return and all sadness, all sickness, all pain, all death will disappear. All thorns will be gone. And it will be sunshine and spring forever. Whatever that means, we have nothing to compare it to. We don't even know how to, how to think about it. But Father, I pray that you would help us to trust you. That you have been good and faithful in every promise. And you will be in this one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.